Hi everyone. Earlier this week, I hosted Dr. Judy Stevenson for a chat about the history of working from home and mixed-use cities. Judy is an associate professor at University College London, specializing in the history of labor markets and the built environment. She's also a research associate at both Oxford Center for Economic and Social History and the Cambridge Group for the History of Population and Social Structure, and a director at the Long Run Institute. Judy's insights have been featured by The Economist, Financial Times, and beyond. Her upcoming book, Wages Before Machines, explores salaries and bargaining in the pre-industrial world. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So let's jump back 300 years. So let's start with London. So viewed from above, what did urban work look like? Okay, so I'm going to take you to like the late 17th, early 18th century in London. And so let's pretend we're talking about the period just after, within a sort of decade or 20 years after the Great Fire of London, where the city is already rebuilt and starts growing very rapidly. So we're talking boom time, 17th century boom time. Urban work really in this period in London all, looks all about the services sector. There are, there is product, people are making things, there's craft, people making very high-end goods particularly, anything of high value will be made in workshops. So what kind of goods and what kind of services are we talking about? Oh, everything. There's a, this is a cornucopia of wonderful new goods. This is an era of new goods. Furniture, ceramics, glass. There's glass makers in London. The Murano makers move here in the 17th mm-hmm. century because England has a particular approach to crystal and glass making that becomes very important in the 18th century. Sugar. The sugar bakers have these have warehouses with these big copper pots and sort of mint seeping over them. Building, construction. Construction accounts for well over 10% of the economy most of this time. Gold, clothing, gloving that can be consumed is being maybe not made, but assembled in London and sold in London. There's a retail environment all along Cheapside, growing into the West End. So there are skilled people making things. The unskilled people are moving stuff around. So they're kind of, and they're messed and they're moving stuff like they're moving earth, they're moving people, they're on the river, a lot of stuff on the river. There's a lot of activity around the bridge. They're moving stuff in the markets, around the markets. They're moving mm-hmm. things through the streets. They're also moving information. You've got lots of watchmen and messengers who are basically running around with little messages and bills and things all over the city. Apparently, the traffic is much worse than today. It takes two hours to cross London Bridge at some point in this wow. period. And that's by foot. So where are they running? Where is most work produced? Are people in offices, in factories? Where is the workplace? What does the workplace look like? That's a good question. So the workplace is the city in a sense. The conception that we have of a workplace, like of, a, of an office to, or a manufactory to do with a particular employer, that's, yeah, that's not quite the same. To understand the conception of what a workplace is, there are workshops and sellers of goods where mm-hmm. some people come to work, but most of the people who would have work with that place or with that that trader don't necessarily work in the same place only the apprentices and the very very most people don't have a full-time job they just have occasional work particularly the unskilled tend to be out and about they're outside in markets moving things around they're on the river or they are moving warehouses and sites people who do have are beginning to have what we conceive of as an office are in administrative roles and they have positions. And But even like Sam Pepys, Samuel Pepys, who was the most famous Londoner of this period. Because he wrote a diary that everyone still refers to, yeah? That's Absolutely, like yeah. It's a, 
very naughty. But his life is getting out and about. He's you know, he's got a major position on the Navy board. He's a, he's se- he's a secretary of the Admiralty, and he his life is going out and about and meeting people in coffee houses, and meeting people in other administrative offices. But he doesn't have a desk he goes to every day, and he works bizarre hours, crazy hours. So that's like a typical, if we're zooming in into one type of person, what does a typical day look like for a merchant or, or a position holder? The, it, it consists of meetings or yeah, a lot of meetings that one has to have. But the meetings so, happen where? They happen in people's houses. So merchants particularly do have a workplace and this is a, as a, they have the, and it's a combination of the family home, which is about, and that was where you would have meetings if you like these are about intimacy this is a tradition that carries on particularly in banking right mm-hmm. up the 20th century the big banking houses but you also then have a place of counting counting house and you also then have a place where stuff is stored inventory is stored so there are three or four so the office is at home it's like a townhouse of some sort where you have your meetings then there's a separate place where clerks sit but not hundreds of them the i would gather come later or... the talks come much later so if you look at so let's take a 17th century bank one of the first whores which still have offices on fleet street pretty much in the same place there the structure of the building at the time were offices where the senior bankers could the people actually taking deposits and working out the risk and saying we lend would work that uh, would mm-hmm. be but the work of the clerks and the record keepers was done elsewhere and it's literally just a book with a place to write it's not that those people don't have a workspace as it were and the tradition certainly within the church and within bigger organizations is that there are there's a desk or a place where the book is but that's not necessarily your work place except for the, the very you know sacred monks so in the late 17th early say 18th century the notion of a workplace our notion of a workplace is confounded by two things in, in that area first of all most people don't work for the same employer all the time Like the job, nobody really has a job. People have bits of work. They have some work that they're doing right now and they might be working for somebody else in a few months time. And the place, they're more likely to be moving around between places that things have to be exchanged than actually in one place. So the whole city is a buzz the whole time. Mm -hmm. But the notion of having a desk and something that you come into every day is much more modern than that. So it's more of an idealized capitalist world that kind of Adam Smith wrote about before we started thinking about firms and offices of a price coordination mechanism sends people around, whether on a daily basis or monthly basis to just do whatever the economy the mar- thinks. The market is all doing. around you. Yes, the market is yeah. all around you. And I think it's important to say that people are not being paid in steady jobs. So when they do get paid, they get paid for... The thing that they sell, task that they're asked to carry out or to to hold a position and take responsibility for a certain thing for a certain amount of time. So um, presenteeism is not a big deal in the 17th and 18th century. So whatever you produce, you get paid for it. So we spoke a little bit about like the upper class people and maybe we can come back to them. But if we want to zoom in on like a white collar or like a laborer during that period, what does their life look for, look like? like? What are they doing? Where are they doing it? How are they getting paid for it? So laborers in London at the time are either working on construction sites or they're hauling stuff around. Um, and the people who are hauling stuff, they're working on construction sites. They will be working a 12 or 13 hour day with a break in the middle and possibly a break. It's a very early, about 6 a.m. right through to evening, depending on the light. Sometimes it's shorter in winter. And there'll be a break for food in the middle of the day. That It's their food. Nobody's given it to them. And it's 
basically hard graft. The life of a laborer is men die early for a reason in that you're working brutal, physical, hard labor all day. On, on the river, what you're doing is you're hauling stuff from, a, from place to place. And because you're paid for the task, not for your time when you're hauling, you basically have, there's a lot of hanging around on the river looking for things. Moving stuff on lighters, which are small, the small boats that go between the larger boats and the shore and that go between the larger boats and through under London Bridge and up to the different steps. You might be working for six or seven employers in a day. So, so like an Uber, like the Uber drivers of the river, basically. The Uber drivers are the same thing. And the city, that turns into quite a tough market and the city regulates it. It says there's this much, these are the rates that can be paid for watermen and lightermen and hauliers. And this is how they're going to pick up tickets for those things. And everybody has to be mm. registered and do all that kind of stuff. So that gets regulated already. The time, the, the, in terms of that also, work is really seasonal. So nobody, the time of year that we are now, early March, work is just picking up again because in early modern London in services, people don't do much in January and February. It's called Candlemas. There's this all work records show people working really hard up to December 25th. And then January, February, there's a few people flicking stuff around. And then in March, work picks up again before the big accounting day, which is Lady Day. Yeah. So just to summarize where we are until now. So we're looking at a city where, as you said, like the workplace is the city or the city is the office, as some say these days. People are mostly unaffiliated with large organizations and large organizations yeah. largely don't exist so much apart yeah. from a handful. And both kind of the upper class and the working class people, they tend to work or do business with multiple different employers or partners. Work is generally more piecemeal or contract-based rather than just getting paid for your time. Every spe spatial arrangement in terms of where people work and how cities are designed seems to dictate or at least reflect some kind of economic arrangement. So did the location of these workplaces affect how people were compensated, how many hours they worked, other aspects of their lives? Yes, I think it's the other aspects of their lives is I'm talking about, apart from hard laboring, I'm talking about both women and because women particularly are very well represented in the goods market. And so they tend to own that small workshop or warehouse and people come in, they have apprentices, they have servants. The children are living out with nurses or other family or are in an apprentice, but there's servants and other people maybe. In, and these are the people who are in a workplace, by the way, is domestic servants. Both mm -hmm. those who come in with the aristocracy for the season and those who are also attached to households and houses. But How the are they employed, by the way? So they're like the maybe an example of an early employee, like the Downton Abbey downstairs. Most of that is done what you call an... So even that contract is very short by today's com job comparisons. You sign up for a year. Okay. So, you, so at the end of every year, you go, are we doing this again? And the contract is, we'll pay you this much at the end of the year. And then this is the kind of board and lodging you have. Yes, you're allowed butter. You're not having cheese. Yes, we'll buy you, we'll get you livery or clothes. You can have an allowance for this or whatever. And it totally depends on the house. But household. you get paid at the end of the contract. Until then, you're just basically yeah. allowed to live and eat. And Yeah, if there is a cash payment, you get paid at the end of the contract. Absolutely. Okay. Nothing nothing in between because you're, you're put up in between. So some live very well. If you're part of a nice household, this is great. If you're not, also great. I'm trying um, to negotiate something similar with my wife now, just to let me know. Indeed. Uh, but the other people who are making goods, of course, are not because they're working for different people they are their incomes are dependent on demand so obviously they've got very little income in january and february then they'll work very hard for maybe other bits of the year it, it really mm -hmm. depends on what we think of as effective demand but they might have a lot of work and work 
very long hours through the nights or subcontract to other people at peak times. And then that would break again. Essentially, what this means, the relationship between the kind of workplace and the economic arrangement is the idea of work is very precarious. So what we understand, uh, you've got a job, you've paid a salary, you pay for your time. These are not assumptions you can make for early modern workers who assume that there will be work and income will come, but who mostly also have to do their own accounting and write their own yeah. bill. So before my next question, I just want to remind everyone, if you have any questions about the history of work that you want to throw at Judy or me, drop them in the comments, whether you're on LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitter, wherever you are, I'm trying to keep track of everything. Let me have a look here just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And uh, okay, so moving along. So when and why did this arrangement stop? Like when and why did work move out of the house? Did it happen at once? Did it happen in waves? What happened? So, how did we end up here? How do we end up here? Exactly. Good point. So two things happened, particularly at the end of the 18th century. The first is that the manufacture of goods becomes industrialized and moves away from London largely. It still lingers in London and the other big cities in, in workshops right to the end of the 19th century. But large scale employment moves out of cities and into manufacturing factories. And the experiments in how technological trigger. Yes. Yeah? So like steam and later other types of power basically require more people to be around the machines or to move stuff towards the machines it's generally held to be about the energy about the power like the source of the big and you get this is why you get some tall factories as well there's a there's one power source before electrification when you're doing steam there's one power source one lever and machines are basically into that which also gives you a limit on the total number of machines that you can have but these manufactories tend to be built outside of cities close to coal and water power. And that creates a, a new type of work where obviously then the administrative job of organizing it, accounting for it, paying for it, managing suppliers and all that kind of stuff turns into the white collar aspect of industrialized businesses. And that remains in the city or it moves out first and then comes back it's, when it has telegraphs or other ways to communicate? It's, 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 it doesn't really come back into London until the end of the 19th century, except apart from some like London kept sugar and a couple of other industries. But most industry takes off in the northwest of England in what is now Manchester and Lancashire. So where the that, good music is. Where the good music is. Yes. They're, and they're completely correlated. Absolutely. That, that turns the workplace. And at the same time, because the state starts organizing military action, particularly in a much bigger way through the Revolutionary Wars, the large, the organization of state and its administration gets bigger and that gets leads you to more big offices. So Somerset House, which is on the river here, just opposite LSD, is the first, damn, we need some office space. 1775, yeah. big office space. And that becomes the model for offices for many big organizations, banks and merchant insurers and all the kind of financial services and other services around there as well. And essentially what those early offices are, they're still counters. They're not places where you have desks and cups of tea and places mm -hmm. to hang out and any kind of lifestyle. They are counters where stuff accounts can be written and it's only in the mid 19th century that you start the continuation of clerks or administrators who are paid for their time who you can see and oversee so it's really the oversight of work and firms beginning to manage productivity in the sense of looking at people and managing them uh, from the early 19th century onwards that creates what we understand of the modern workplace 
And this By is... the way, speaking of tea, I just, I wrote about it last week. In the 1910s, there was a very fierce discussion on the pages of the New York Times about whether American offices should adopt 4 p.m. tea, just like in England. And a lot of people had very strong opinions about the Brits not really working too hard and Americans never would never have time to drink tea at 4 p.m. because they're actually hard at work and it's distracting. And then they did some research and found that people can actually drink tea and work at the same time, which was a revelation apparently, <laughs> in American business. Can you imagine the crisis of etiquette, though? Like all this, yeah, they could take dictation and sip in yeah. parallel. Yeah. So the the urban structure of work mm. services really only grows in the from the mid nineteenth century onwards. And then what happens? So you mentioned that a lot of manufacturing moves out of the city. Let's say two hundred fifty years ago or so, or a little earlier, maybe in England. What happens to all of those offices that used to be in houses and to all the places that hosted people working? Like how are houses being transformed? as a response to that. So houses are being transformed in the sense that there is a suburbanization is not just a 20th century phenomenon. On the late 18th century, the well-to-do merchants started building pretty villas a couple of miles from the city center. So the, fir the first bit of that is what we now call Belgravia and Chelsea. And the subsequent bits of that are what is now zone three of London. The Wimbledons, mm -hmm. the Streathams, the Hampsteads are the nice places where well-to-do, well-heeled professional classes built big villas for easy access to the city. So the, there's, that's the sort of first wave of suburbanization, which has actually been going through the early 17th century when the city of London got too crowded and noisy before the fire and everyone was like, Ugh, yeah. too much. So you have this constant cycle of living and working and living and working within the big cities. It's New York has the same with its suburbs. And those there's these constant power balances between, but essentially, for a period then in the 20th century, professional work moved out of big cities. We all moved out of big cities. Big cities went out of fashion and then went back into fashion in the late 1980s with the globalized financial services and professional yeah. services. But until that, that, generally the trend across the 19th century was to build stuff within the city for work. And the model that you have in New York turned into the skyscraper because of the use of steel. And the model that we have in here in the in, in London in the UK because of planning and many things to do with the fire and lack of steel and so also first mover disadvantage, the high rise thing never got going. So there, there is a, a very particular kind of class structure to 19th century buildings in that there are certain classes of clerk and just administrative workers who have no access to the real places of power in the building. Places are much more segmented than they would be today. There's literally, there's four junior staff, entrances yeah. for clubs and entrances for the officers and other places as well. Um, so you mentioned a few times things came up like wars, fires, and obviously we are now living on the heels of an own kind of external disaster with COVID. And we tend to look at it as, as a trigger for massive changes in the way people live and work. So what are like looking back 300 years, what are the kind of main disasters or shocks that shaped the kind of relationship between the city and the office and the home? And what was their impact? Yeah, the Great Fire is one. And the, when the London was completely raised in the 60s, people thought it would never get going again. That's, so that's one thing that happens all the time is they go, oh, it's never going to work again. The other main crises are usually financial crises. Okay. So the uh, financial war and financial crisis, but for instance, the big cri financial crises of the mid 1860s, uh, the Gurney brother crisis here in the in in the UK, banking crisis created a number of bankruptcies, which created what we would call 
redundancies, which created a bit of a real estate crisis, which created demolitions, repurposes, reusages. Sounds like 2023, basically. <laughs> Sounds like 2023. The other big change for London, of course, was after the Second World War where large parts of the city were raised through Destroyed, the yeah. And actually rebuilding there took a lot longer than it had in 1660. There's bits, there were bits of London that did not get filled in again until the late 70s, early 1980s. And structurally it created a, first of all, it brought residential, it slowed down residential growth until the 1980s. So London didn't have as much of a workforce as it does now. Mm -hmm. But the second thing it does is it, it did was it split it confirmed the split between financial, which is financial services, which had always been, always been in the city, but there had been other things too, and other types of services in the West End. And that became even more solidified after the Second World War. Whereas before, before that, the two had mixed up more. So, which again, parallel process, I'd say in North America as well, in terms of like specific industries or specific office work really becoming seg segregated into specific parts of the city and have their own buildings with their own shape and style. I want to leave some time for a question or two from the audience, but I think between the lines came out a lot of like social issues, whether it's safety, inequality, general kind of squalor and poverty. What are some policies that help cities address the shortcomings of the kind of the early modern work from home? world and both in terms of their positive intended effects or also maybe some unintended effects that we can learn from hopefully today as we're heading into a world that sounds so disturbingly thing, similar. So the thing where there's both regulation and investment from a higher force, it's got to be transportation. That's the thing that change that makes London's workplaces as they establish in a kind of fixed way in the 19th century accessible to what you might call the working class. And the partnership, so the railways are all uh, private enterprises, but the private-public partnership in terms of planning and how those get constructed, which is sometimes disastrous and sometimes brilliant, is absolutely critical to the path dependency of how the city comes together. So in terms of like policy, having a policy about where those stations go and where they come into and where, where the lines are has really fundamentally affected the long-run working practice and housing as well. So in terms of housing, again, Regulation from a safety, health and safety, fire and living standards point so of view. Standardizing basically where people should be allowed to live at all. Especially services, particularly like it's the sewers and the waters and what used to be the churches. Those were seen as vital services till the late 19th century. It's those things, the zoning of them, the planning of them, which was coordinated by both private investors and public servants that created the ability for there to be Essentially, the, the late 19th and 20th century model is little houses and workers moving around within a particular city. Whereas what, what we had come from in the 17th century had been large places and not as non-self-contained households and, cells and houses and a sort of interconnectedness. And I can see in the chat, people are going, there seems to be something in this that we're looking at again. And the real question of the, do we go into the centre? Or are we just buzzing all around, all around is the hot question now. All right. So I see we're 
we're at time, but we're, we can continue for a few more minutes. We have a few questions to address here with the audience. Yes, uh, so good question here from George. It's a little long to read, but basically you described the transition to industrial work pretty quickly. Does that feel rapid to people living through it? Did it happen gradually? What would people have noticed changing around them living there at the time? And what were the things that were more sticky and didn't change <laughs> quickly enough or still didn't change at all? So I think the biggest changes and also the changes where we have biographies and people's spoken word on this for the first time mm -hmm. from, from the early 19th century after the Revolutionary Wars, when the railways are beginning to be laid out. And people will say, I grew up around here, around Moorfields or yeah. what is now. And, you know, there were green fields and you could see the city. And now here I am 40 years later and it's houses from here to whatever. And then I go into work on a railway line and I'm working in a particular way for a regular employer, which I wasn't. So that, that sort of would have happened over a 30 or 40 year period between 1815 and 45. And it's quite profound. I think, I think that would have been really noticed for the first time. All right. And another question from Michael. So you mentioned those kind of early suburbs to the west of the city. Today, obviously very central, very expensive, but back then the suburbs, were they driven by railroad lines or something else? So only the third wave development of late 19th century development is dependent on the railway lines after 1850 or so. Um, before that, the burbs are really about who's got land and who can sell it to the best developer. There's a wonderful new biography of Nicholas Barbon by Tim Walker in the London Topographical Society, which basically says how the planning model of buy the land Here's the leasehold for development. Here's the leasehold for the long, long rental scheme and how they financed all these things. But one of the first sub suburbs is just north here of the Bedford estate. It's called Summerstown, which was bits of another manorial estate, which were sold off to keep that particular duchy going. And where you've got large scale, basically construction who want to profit by, who have a, a modular way of building houses and who can get so many houses up in a season and get a cash flow in. So they are driven by the construction industry's supply chains more than any, and some transportation. Yeah, and I think in England, also here in, in the US, but I think in England, the first real suburbanites were like the, the royals or upper classes that could basically live in a palace and own land and didn't have to work in the city or have anything to do with it. And then those that had a coach or could the upper class merchants maybe could move out of the city because they wanted to live like aristocrats. Uh, this is and the city, particularly the 18th century city is planned around. There's the garden square is the predominant way that the rich like mm -hmm. to live because they yeah. think it's airy and love. there's a pile of poo, literally poo in the corner. Do you know what I mean? Because the way of dealing with rubbish is not what we would consider healthy. But these idea that these garden squares, you give you fresh air, you're away from the animals. However, at the hint of plague or cholera or anything else, they take off out of the city as soon as they can. And of course, the poor are left behind, unable to afford the transport. And the Garden Square for Americans is like those cute little parks that you see in neighborhoods in London, Notting Hill or Marylebone or Mayfair, where you have a bit like in Gramercy in New York, which is a rare, a rare style, but very British. But in, in London, there's much more of that. Absolutely. It's Notting Hill. It's Cadogan Square. It's got that nice spot in the middle where you think everyone's sitting out having tea in the summer. Yeah. All right. So last question for me. So looking ahead, where do you see cities, offices, homes in 50 years? What can we learn from history as we go through our own great reshuffle triggered by plague? Soon looks like financial crisis of some sort and who knows what other fun 
awaits so us. I think, I think that's as dependent on the firm as it is dependent on public investment in city spaces. Firms at the moment are making decisions that they want everybody in the office. And they want everybody also to be able to work from home if there's a crisis or if the offices can't be mm -hmm. used for whatever reason. But that fundamentally changes the nature of employment because we're all paid for our time. And if you're not in the office and somebody can see what you're doing, you're not going to be paid for your time. You're going to be paid for your output, your project fee, as it were. And then there's a question about, do you manage people who are working on projects or do you employees or are they subcontractors? The management decisions that shareholder driven organizations make about that question about how they make labor productive will affect how we use the office. And if you had to bet on what they will decide and what the outcome will be physically when we look at the city? I think it would be unusual if things became more centralized than they were because work mm -hmm. has never been so centralized as it was at the end of the 20th century. I can't see corporations getting, the trend is actually for corporations not to get bigger in terms of headcount. You mean they may be getting cash richer, but, yeah. you know, very richer, but they're not getting bigger in terms of headcount. So that leaves me to believe that we'll get more desegregated and more there'll be more ver vertical disintegration. And what that means is that you're not going to have any more rock centers. You're not going to have any more 1251s. You're not going to have things that are assigned to organizations, particularly that are known as places of work for that organization. You're going to have buildings that are shared and rented by lots of different Players. And it also means that what we think about as suburbia will actually probably become a nicer place to be because people will be, workers will be there more. And the services around it, in terms of the stuff that was in the nice office kitchen. So more mixed uses, basically. In the, more mixed use, exactly. The and that's culturally interesting as well. So that would be my prediction is like we couldn't get any more centralized than we were. So it's probably going the other way. Yeah. I tend to agree. I think we, we tend to use the 1950s as a benchmark of normal life. Well, historically, it's such a unique and yeah. extreme period in so many ways. Completely. Again, not that it's good or bad, but just like thinking that we'll ever go back there, I think is, is something that we're, we're slowly learning to, to let go of. So Judy, before I thank you officially and say goodbye, there's another question that I think we don't have to answer today, but it, it connects me to an event I have next week. So Ronan asked about the 15-minute city. It seems to be a very polarizing issue at the moment. People hate it. People love it. Next week, I'm hosting another live chat with Alain Berto, who is like a, an urban planner and like a very distinguished, interesting thinker about the evolution of cities and transportation networks. And I think he has a lot to say about that, less from the conspiracy theory side of things and more just about in thinking the role of planners in trying to shape economic activities and, and physical environments. So Ronan and everyone else, make sure to join me there as well. And Judy, this was so much fun. We definitely should do it more frequently than every 12 years. Thank you so much for joining and for sharing your knowledge and insights with us. And Thank I hope to see you soon in sunny London. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Jordan. And, uh, and sorry, and I'll have to mention, where should people find you? I know that on Twitter, you're at Judy Zara. Anywhere else in particular where people should? Uh... That's where I. That's where I hang out. Yeah, I'm Excellent. trying to write. I'm trying to write the book Wages Before Machines at the moment, so desperate plug in the end. So I'm not hanging out that much, but that's where I hang out. Yeah. So yeah, Judy is very prompt at answering to her DMs, regardless of what she just said. So look her up on Twitter at Judy Zara. Follow me as well if you aren't already at Jor Poleg. Thank you all for listening and watching, and thank you again, Judy, and we'll see you all again soon.